was a young boy named Ron Francel, and he wrote books that were scary as hell. Some of them were true. Some of them were true. <laughs> and he only has one that he can't seem to sell. <laughs> we're talking about award-winning journalist and brilliant author Ron Francel. Our guest today, I am the legendary Burl Bear. The man sitting in Don Waldeman's chair is Hollywood private eye Fred Wolfson, the most famous private eye in the world. Isn't that right, Fred? Say yes. I think second only to uh, Pelicano, who's in jail right now, so I guess that makes me number one. Yes, the most famous private eye outside of prison. The woman over there is the brilliant and talented Miss Judy Faye, the singing psychic, commercial actress, sketch comedian, and the best straight woman since Margaret Dumont wearing a sundress. Produced by Magic Matt Allen, smoking a cigar. He's never looked better in that lovely Angora sweater. And on the phone, Ron Francel. How you doing, Ron? Hey, I'm doing great. And listening to all of that, I'm doing much better. <laughs> yeah, they'll cheer you up. Man, is there anybody who writes this kind of stuff who isn't in Texas? Uh, uh, Vincent Bugliosi, sure. I mean, you know, Ann Rule. Yeah, that's yeah. two. <laughs> I mean, Texas and Wyoming, because you write about Wyoming. Yes, I do. But I mean, or did you did? Yes. So we'll yeah. discuss that. But I mean, we've had Stephen Long on and Susie Spencer and a bunch of other people writing from Texas. Texas has like more crimes and true crime authors. Is it because of the size of the state, or is it just like afflicted with you know like uh, psychotic disease? Well, I, you know, maybe it's just this uh, abnormal obsession that Texans have with crime. I don't know. I, I I just got back, as a matter of fact, just moments ago before I called in, that uh, and and was at a signing by Corey Mitchell, one, oh, another yeah. one, great guy. Uh, yes, very good. He yeah. sends his regards. Well, that's good, and we'll put them. Let <laughs> me put them right, put them somewhere here. Did you know Texas was the only state that has an express line for executions? <laughs> They do. Right. No, no waiting. Really, you just go right in and get executed, and then you, you don't even have to commit a crime anymore. No, no, no. more. No. It's yeah. So convenient. Yeah, you, you, uh, you pay attention to speed limit signs down here. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. I got a uh, a bill in the mail. Well, I, mean, I was down in uh, lovely Pflugerville, land of enchantment, where industry and nature work hand in hand. In Boy, Texas. you're a name dropper, aren't you? <laughs> Isn't he? Yeah, just drop that name Pflugerville like that, and I got a thing in the mail for not having paid a toll. You know, they just sit in the mail, and you don't argue. Well, that was a troll you didn't pay. <laughs> that was a troll you forgot to pay. That was something, something totally different that you didn't. And pay. you didn't realize it, right? No, Earl? no, I'm clueless anyway. That's why I write true crime. Uh, I, if I was an envious person, Ron, I would be envious of you. But instead, I merely admire that you got away with doing something that I've wanted to do for some time. <laughs> well, that's Ron, let us sell a hit book. That's what he wants to get away with. <laughs> well, we, Ron and I have both had the uh, unpleasant distinction of writing true crime books about cases uh, where people we knew were murdered. With him, it's the book Fall With Me. It was the book Body Count. Uh, he was able to acknowledge that he was there because he had a higher class of, <laughs> of something uh, where I had to disguise myself in the book and give myself an alias because <clears throat> I write those kind of books where you, uh, you know, just the facts, ma'am, Joe Friday sort of thing, you know, where you don't have the personal involvement of the author. In your book Fall, which was the title Hardback, uh, Darkest Night, Paperback, you got to be you. Yes, I did, and and believe me, it was it was a very difficult decision for a, a career newspaper man uh, to suddenly uh, decide to tell a story in which I was involved, and to um, and to make myself in in some small part a character in this story. But uh, well, they say journalists. The worst thing that can happen to a journalist is to violate the wall and wind up being in the story. Well, yeah, that's true, and uh, luckily I didn't do that. But uh, I think that uh, the the the, the I, I approached it as if I were the spokesman or the symbol, if you will, of everybody else, of all those kids in my neighborhood who who were splashed by this crime, and 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 so I stepped into that role, and and when I talk about that. Uh, when I talk about me there, uh, 
I try to make sure it's outside of the story. The reader knows it's outside of the story, and that um, I'm I'm really kind of reflecting uh, the feelings that are common to a lot of us who were kids at the time of this crime and who were affected by it. Now, this is a not a big city, right? No, no, not at all. Uh, and for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with the story, would you mind giving us the the basic setup of what what, ha- what horrible thing happened? Well, sure. Um, it was 1973, and it was an autumn night. It was it was a l- little chilly. My my next door neighbors. I was 16 years old at the time. Uh, my next door neighbors, uh, two girls. Uh, one was 18, Becky, and her 11 year old sister Amy. Uh, went to the supermarket, uh, local neighborhood market, uh, to pick up some things for their mother. Uh, there, they were tricked by a couple of local hoods into getting into their car. Mm. Uh, and that begins this night of terror in which they're tortured physically and mentally, uh, and ultimately taken to this remote bridge over a deep canyon out in the middle of nowhere. Um uh, Little Amy is thrown off the bridge very quickly. She's in the way. She's she's a menace. She's a witness. She's anything but their interest. Uh, she's killed in the fall, 12 stories down into this black canyon in the river. Uh, then the two guys turn to her older sister and rape her and then take her and throw her off the bridge. Miraculously... She survives, um, you know, despite having a pelvis that's broken in five places and a night that's hitting freezing temperatures. She she gets out of the river, half naked, uh, covers herself with her long hair and some sagebrush, and and spends that night waiting for the dawn to come, so that she can somehow get out of there. She's she's convinced that these guys are still up there above waiting to finish the job. She's pretty sure her sister's down there with her someplace, a corpse. Uh, she's, she's banged up. She's been raped. Uh, she's cold, and it's black as hell down there. And uh, the next morning when the sun finally does come up, she does get out of that canyon. She inches herself, literally drags the dead bottom half of her body out of that canyon and is found by fishermen. She quickly identifies these guys. They, they are well known to the cops. They're picked up. Uh, and ultimately, within a few months, back when this happened that way, within a few months, tried. They were convicted and sentenced to die. Unfortunately, in the mid-1970s, America was still ambivalent about the death penalty and, and of course, the great decision uh, in the Supreme Court that, that, found, that, that found the death penalty unconstitutional everywhere in the United States ultimately resulted in them being commuted to life in prison. Uh, at that point, Becky, who is still recovering from this horror, uh, begins a tailspin. She's convinced they're going to come back and they're going to kill her. They're going to finish the job. She, she's already unable to form any sort of intimate relation with a man. She works these sort of small-end jobs. Uh, she also gets into drugs and alcohol uh, as a way to medicate and... Uh, uh, ultimately, she uh, she returns to that bridge and commits suicide by jumping off of it in exactly the same spot where they threw her. Jeez. How old was she when she committed suicide? She was about uh, 37 years old. It was, oddly, uh, she was 18 when this crime happened, and... and Roughly 19 years later, when she committed suicide there. So I, I talk about in the book her first life and her second life uh, because they were very different. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, the trauma that this woman went through, it is no wonder that she uh, had, you know, all these issues. 
Well, and 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 that's absolutely true. And and she was a she had a personality that she, that the, it was important to her to be positive. It was important to her to be sunny and bright. And ultimately, I think that that was probably her downfall. I think that she simply kept everybody else from knowing her torment by being so persistently and chronically sunny. Uh, I know I talked to her several times after this crime. Uh, as an adult, we worked together in a local newspaper, and uh, I had no inkling of this. And certainly the, those people who were even closer to her than I was um, had no inkling. And uh, I think that that um, this was not a time when victimhood was the badge of being, you know, uh, of, it was not the badge that it is today. Today we're very comfortable with victims, and we're very comfortable playing victims. But back then it was a little different. Mm. Well, yeah, Ron, can I ask a question? After Certainly. after the incident, was she functional? Was she able to go to work? And was she able to function day to day? Sure. Once she once she healed physically, uh, she was. In fact, uh, uh, the the lead investigator on this case got her a job as a meter maid in the city police, and she did that for a couple of years. Uh, he ultimately. Uh, became a father figure to her. In fact, when her, her stepfather couldn't be at her wedding, uh, the lead investigator in this rape murder was the man she chose to give her away. Hmm. I got a question, shop, shop talk question here for you, Ron. Sure. When you went to write this book, when you first had the idea, you did the pitch, did you pitch this with uh, the the aspect of your personal relationship with this case? Yes, but yes, uh, the, the, the simple answer. The more complex answer is that it. I didn't foresee playing as big a role in this story as it ultimately did. I, 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 the, the, the story as I originally wrote it minimized my role. Ultimately, the publisher said, it's your role that, that makes this different. Plus, this is such a dark story. We need somebody to hold our hand as readers, and you're it. So we, need, we want more. We want more of that reflection, which wasn't difficult to do, but it, 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 it sort of required me to revisit that thinking process that I originally went through when I, I was reluctant. I was reluctant to do that. Yeah, well, as as you've mentioned in in print, and uh, as we've discussed on this program before uh, about writers, and we do have a lot of authors and aspiring authors who listen to this program, aside from its fantastic entertainment content, is that uh, uh, just because you can write uh, journalism doesn't mean you can write a novel, and just because you can write a novel doesn't mean you can write poetry or a technical manual. These are different types of skills. Absolutely. And as a, as a journalist, uh, this is a little different. I mean, you've written mysteries, you wrote novels, and that's a whole other mindset than writing a, a newspaper article. Sure, I might as well go out and learn rocket science. I mean, you know, the fact that, that you're working with words is about the only relationship, the only correlation between the two. And I've, I've illustrated this in the past by saying, you know, we're storytellers take many forms. They are songwriters. They are screenwriters. They're poets. They're news anchor women. What about being a news anchor woman predisposes you to being a good poet? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing at all. So when I first started writing books, I was, I was extremely arrogant in my, in my uh, presumption that because I worked with words, and then, you know, this was a matter of just shifting gears a little bit and writing a little longer and maybe a little more floridly than we do in, in a newspaper. And I was so wrong that I had to destroy six months' worth of writing, which probably wasn't very good writing, on a novel. And I had to go back and learn the, the, the conventions of book 
storytelling, of being an author. And it is so different uh, when, you know, it, it's, it's not a matter of shifting years. So I think that uh, you, you are uh, well advised if you are trying to do this to, to, to go study, go learn some of these skills. Sure, it helps if you work every day with words, but that's not going to be enough. Ron, did you actually go back to school to learn this, or did you I did. Just do I a took lot of courses. And... Yeah, I took courses in in creative writing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I there are certainly people out there who say that uh, journalists today are are our best fiction storytellers. That's if they're covering the government. But really, I, I proved to myself that I wasn't that good. And uh, it really required going back and learning. Uh, and I've had to do the same thing, just shifting between fiction storytelling in books to nonfiction storytelling in books. Each, each one of these has, again, different conventions, different skills, uh, different muscle groups. You know? <laughs> well, I understand that because I'm also an actress. And I find when I do TV or when I do stage, it's just so oh, different. yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that, uh, you know, musicians who play electric guitar, when they go to acoustic, they're going, you know, they're making a similar kind of leap, that they have to adjust. They have to um, take into account that there are going to be different skills involved and different perceptions. So uh, this book is, you know, I don't, I've never sold myself as a true crime writer. I'm a storyteller, and in The Darkest Night, I'm telling a story that just happens to be about a crime that really happened. Do you feel you're creating when you're doing this? Because I know so many times Burl says, well, I'm doing true crime. I'm not creating like I would when I write a novel. Do you feel that way also? I felt it with this, certainly, because, uh, you know, I ultimately feel that in order to be successful as a storyteller, I have to fax whatever's in my heart pretty pretty accurately, pretty infinitesimally accurately into your heart. And and so I, I think it's not just a matter of being a reporter who writes long, <laughs> uh, I like that line. <laughs> yeah, I think it's. I think I'm telling a story, and and maybe we have a lot. It's not just true crime, but we have a lot of um, uh, authors who who aren't telling. You know, they're telling a story. I'm not saying they're not doing that. But they're not aware, maybe, of some of the uh, the nuances of sort of timeless storytelling, and and I'm very. I'm very fascinated by timeless storytelling. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know I'll why. I'll tell you what, Ron, we got to stop here just for a second for a Thanks. commercial break, which is a time factor. Oh, we've uh, got to pay. We've yeah, i got to pay. We have so many people who want to spend massive amounts of money to be associated with this program. You'd be amazed to music, Astagog, and Thunderstruck. We will discuss myth, mythology, and truth right after this commercial message. around you. Enhance your surroundings with an inviting scent. For the connoisseur of good taste, Danaman Moods Filter offers a sophisticated smoking experience that both engages and rewards. A premium cigarello, Moods combines a unique filler blend with a rich silky wrapper to deliver a short and fully satisfying smoke. The pleasing tropical aroma is subtle and sensual, rich and classic. With Moods, the atmosphere you create reflects your good taste. Moods Filter by Daneman, the sensual experience for you and those around you. What are you waiting for? Get in the moods. It's time for you to get in the moods. I'm in the moods. I know you're in the mood. And now, back to 
True Crimes with Burl Bear and Don Waldman. Don Waldman could not be with us today. He's off uh, litigating something. Uh, mitigating or litigating or off at a wedding. Famous private eye Fred Wolfson is sitting in the Don Wolfson chair. No, it's Don Waldman and Wolfson. Is that what it is? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Is that like, do we cheat him in hell? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard. During the, uh, the break, uh, we were explaining to the brilliant and talented Miss Judy Fay the difference between a myth and a myth uh, and a, a superstition. <laughs> a lot of people, a lot of people think when you say uh, something's a myth, they think that means it isn't true. It's not. That's not the case. Uh, from my understanding, a myth actually contains a great deal of truth. It simply may not be literal. Which, what would you say, Mister Francel? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you you should hear the uh, audible snapping shut of orifices when I start talking about <laughs> Christian mythology. I, I'm, I'm a Christian, but we have our mythology, and, and um, it, it, it does have a grain of truth. It, 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 it just, sometimes you can't uh, make it literal, as you said. Ooh, so that was the sound of orifices closing, in case you yeah, couldn't hear it. Right. Uh, do you have a sound effect? Yeah, we do. Matt Allen. Uh, <laughs> there, there, there went another one. When it comes to closing orifices, believe me, Matt is an expert. He has had more clothes on him than just about anybody we know. <laughs> we have a list, as a matter of fact, of individuals and orify. Uh, Let's let's dwell on this a little bit. It may be a little erudite for our audience, but I want you to pontificate, if you pardon the expression, a little bit on this whole timelessness and resonant myth stuff and how that influences your writing. Well, I'm a kid from Wyoming, so I, 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 if I ever pontificated, I'm afraid I'd go blind. Uh, <laughs> it's not I, true about the hair on your hands. That doesn't really happen. I, I know that. Yeah. you got a Remington in your pocket, though. <laughs> yeah. But when I wrote my first novel, I didn't have any, I didn't kid myself that what I was writing was the, the modern equivalent of the Odyssey. But I wanted it to feel like that. I wanted it to have some of the same feel, the texture of, of a timeless story. So where do you go? I mean, you know, I didn't know. Well... There's a guy out there who, who really wanted to know the same thing. Why do we keep telling the same stories, stories over and over again? Over and over and over again. Why are we still telling? Why are we making movies right now of the, about the Battle of Troy? Because um, Brad Pitt looks good in a funny outfit. <laughs> well, you know, Brad Pitt did look good. You know, you got to admit, uh, totally. <laughs> heterosexual but you know there's <laughs> but for a moment there you were thinking yeah anyway yeah, so go ahead but and and then you have all other cultures telling similar kinds of stories and a guy named Joseph Campbell wanted to know why what was it and he basically broke this down and found the elements of a timeless story uh he he also shows i think i don't know that he would say this but I will say it, that every great story we tell, and maybe just every story we tell today, has these elements. And they are. Oh, well, you know, it, 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 there, there are so many. There, there's a, really, you could break it down in a general way to about 12 or 13 Write things. these down, Merle. I'm but, writing but them down. Because <laughs> I'm going to write a new book, and I, I need to have these here. <laughs> well, think about a hero. Think about all of the stories. And, and I challenge you, as we talk here, to come up with one, any story. But you'll start with a hero who may or may not want to... Uh, get out of whatever usual comfortable world he's in, but he he does, and he takes a step into a new world, an unfamiliar world, where he faces trials and tribulations, and ultimately faces his great nemesis. He either wins or he loses, but but either way. He is, he's got to be transformed. He might have to go back to the beginning and start all over again. But ultimately, he has to be transformed. He has to die, 
at least symbolically, and be reborn, then he has to then he has to get back to his normal world and put to use what he's learned. Okay, Let's that's, see, that's should a, we have it be Iron should we have it be Iron Man, the Incredible Hulk, Batman, uh, Robin Hood, <laughs> Buddha, uh, Jesus, uh, Zoroaster in the Wizard of Oz, Luke Skywalker in in Star Wars. Uh, you know the the list. I I, I really um, just just pick any story. Now again, the the problem is to make it literal. You, you know, if you have that, then then you're going to be stuck with the same story over and over again. Sometimes those things are all abstract. Could could a hero's journey take place inside the mind? Well, that's where it's supposed to take place, as in uh, Hinduism, fight the good fight, Arjuna. They actually had archaeologists out looking for the battleground of this fight. And so, someone said, well, perhaps it's an internal battle. Right. So, so you have to think of these things in, in ways that we don't necessarily think of them. The, 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 the simplest way is to say, well, okay, somebody starts in Kansas, and they're swept up by a tornado, and they end up in this strange, colorful place called Oz, and they meet some people, and they have some trials and tribulations. They confront a nemesis who's a big, ugly, green witch, and uh, then they disco- she discovers that she had the power to go home, and what she really wanted all along is what her friends found. She wanted courage. She wanted intellect she wanted she wanted a heart but most of all she wanted a family so we have to we have to be pretty pretty uh, generous in how we apply those elements but for a writer to be aware of of that structure and and then to try to make it to try to see how his story fits that structure is is really what what took me through this that we have a journey and and in the end it's not good enough just to kill Darth Vader we have to get back it's not good enough to find the Holy Grail we have to get back and put it to use well this is yeah. this is a difficulty in the true crime genre of where you happen to to find a way around in in uh, the one you did on Fall and that is in individual real life of stories approached from a semi-journalistic standpoint you don't always find the transformative character no you well no you don't but if campbell was right the reason any story appeals to a human being is because it has some of those mm-hmm. elements about morality and about uh about the ultimate redemption and blah blah blah. You know, I'm starting to pontificate. Damn it! Yeah, well, uh, has the hair growing now? <laughs> <laughs> but, Ron, can I ask you this? Sure. What, what is your ultimate goal as a writer? What are you trying to convey? What are you trying to get across to the reader? In this particular book, yeah. In this particular book, I think I think the message is that that we we can't hide we can't hide. You know, ultimately, evil surrounds us. It's it's like bad air. Uh, we know about has. that because we're in Los Angeles. We know about well, that, that air. You, you've got a, a double whammy. We don't have any choice in that. But we do have a choice in how we respond to it. We can hide from it, you know, and, and fool ourselves that there are safe places in the world, or we can live. Now, here's where... This story suddenly made sense to me. I was I, I had been dispatched to the Middle East right after 9/11 to report on the Afghan war and on the Arab Street. It was when I was coming back and I was flying over the dark Atlantic, and I picked up a French news magazine and I saw for the first time pictures of people falling from the World Trade Center. I was horrified. I'd never seen these photos before. And in one of them, the two people were holding hands in, 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 this, in this odd sort of um, mental moment there. I think I was tired and I was, I, I, was, I was done, but I'd been steeped in terror 
for the for months. Suddenly, I saw my friends, and suddenly I saw how this one night of terror in a small town, where the day before was one way, and the day after was another had a parallel to the world we live in now and the world we were living in then in in those months after to uh, 911 that that we have a choice we can as Becky sort of did build the walls around ourselves and and try to uh, ignore this or we can accept that it's there and we can we can go out and live a life smarter and wiser and and maybe in cases of people like me a little more cynical but we can't stop living and in Becky's case I think we had an example of what happens if you stop living can I I interrupt for a moment Mm -hmm. obviously she was suffering from depression or some kind of psychiatric problems after this wasn't she referred for psychiatric help and wasn't she on medication and wasn't she being helped by some medical professional who was overseeing her progress and getting her back on her feet again or was she just doing this all on her own this is 1973 Wyoming had no victim compensation it had no um no, no infrastructure that allowed for uh, taxpayer subsidized or supported uh, medical help. Becky's physical injuries were paid by her father's work health insurance. Her mental was her mental treatment that she ultimately got more than ten years later. She paid for herself out of her pocket. Huh. Uh, we, we've changed all that, and as a result of her case, Wyoming changed all that. But we live in a world now where victims have much more sort of publicly subsidized support than they did back then. Frighteningly, I show in the book that once Becky did seek psychiatric help, she was raped again. I don't mean I don't mean figuratively. Her her psychiatrist drugged her. And raped her. Oh my God! Oh God! So talk about betrayal. Uh, another betrayal. Just just one of many that Becky uh, confronted. And frankly, when she goes back to that bridge and she plunges to her death, nobody saw that. And so there are those who who I, I, who will say, "Oh well, maybe she just slipped. Maybe a breeze just." bumped her over the edge. I don't want that to happen. I, I, I want to think that Becky finally made a decision, whether I agree with it or I don't, and I don't, but Becky finally made a decision to, to, to be in charge of the next most important thing that was going to happen in her life. And it was going to be her death. But the only way I can, I can really live with this story is to think that she made that decision and she was finally in charge. After a lifetime, I think, of the next most important thing in her life being in somebody else's hands, she finally took charge. Mm. She never stood a chance, actually. I mean, who would be able to go ahead and go from that situation to living a normal life? No, I, I don't know. I really don't know. And uh, she certainly put on a good, normal exterior. But what we now know is that, that her interior was this sort of poisonous stew was of the, the insecurities and guilt. She was always guilty. I imagine the, the sister died. Yeah, the, the, we call it survivor guilt. You know, that the sister died and she didn't feel guilty about that. My uh, nephew of mine in Vietnam went through that. It was kind of like that. I think there's a scene in one of those war movies, Apocalypse Now or Platoon or something, where everyone in the entire platoon or squad is killed and underneath the body there's one guy alive. And that happened to be my, uh, my nephew. 
And when they find him, they say, oh, there you are. We're looking for you. Uh, your dad had a heart attack. We are immediately sending you back to Los Angeles. So he comes out from underneath the bodies where all of his buddies have been killed. He's a lone survivor. The next thing he knows, he's on a plane, boom, landing at LAX. Yeah. Now that's... It, uh, and what happened to him? Oh, it was kind of messed him up for a while, I'll tell yeah. you. Ron, what happened to the psychiatrist? Was he prosecuted? He ultimately was when a whole bunch of his clients, oddly, all of them looking very, very similar, tall, pretty brunettes with long hair, uh, came forward and, and uh, filed suits. Uh, he ultimately was also charged in a court with, uh, with rape. Uh, he plea bargained out of that. His license was taken away, and, and up until recently, he was a, uh, a psychiatrist on the death row intake in Texas, of all places. <laughs> a good place for him. Good old yeah. Texas. Yeah, it's all Texas. Look, we're going to take another break here so that we can sell some amusing items. We're going to come back. We'll talk about something a little more uplifting, such as raising the casket of the Big Bopper. All right? Let me count the ways Is it your silky sweet wrapper? Is it your smooth-bodied aromatic smoke Tempting me to vices unspeakable? Padrone, the exquisite torture you bring to me Not knowing whether to smoke you Build a shrine to you Or even to eat you Padrone, Nicaraguan to smoke or not to smoke, that is not the question. How many to smoke? Ah, now there's the question. Padron, you've stood the test of time. There is no other. You stand alone. You make my life complete. Padron, with you, I'm really smoking. And now, back to True Crimes with Burl Bear and Don Waldman. I am the legendary Burl Bear, raised on records, born to rock and roll, rock to the cradle of rhythm and blues, Edgar Award-winning writer, and the man sitting in Don Waldman's chair is famous Hollywood private eye, Fred Wolfson. The woman sitting in Judy Faye's chair is Judy Faye. What an amazing coincidence. Yes, and on the phone is Ron Francel, a famed journalist, an author of novels, of mysteries, and true crime. Ron, can I ask you a question? Please do. I used to know an attorney here in Los Angeles named Franzel. Do you have a, an attorney out here? That's yes, a, that's my uncle. That's your George. uncle. He, I worked yeah. with him on the Police Protective League. Yeah, he's uh, famous for his uh, defenses of police. Yes, in, I, I just said that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, they can do anything, and Fred and uh, your uncle will jump. Oh, it's okay. Right, we were the ones who got off the uh, right people who beat up Rodney King. <laughs> yeah. the, that was the good news. We got him off. The bad news is uh, we burnt down the city, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, it's nothing's perfect as far as I'm concerned. I'm proud of my uncle, I, I, and uh, I'm, I, he's... Uh, we don't always agree on everything, but, uh, you know, I think he's a passionate lawyer. He is, and he's a good attorney. Well, I went to the Eagle and Badge thing, you know, the police protective thingy. It was wonderful. Sharon Stone was there. She looked great. Uh, she had more work done than 50 miles of Texas freeway, but, I mean, she was in good shape. <laughs> What did she say about you, Burl? Did she mention She's, you? Uh, she didn't mention me much. Oh. No, we have a friend, a buddy of mine, was went with her for a while, but we don't she discuss that. About, she didn't ask about me, did she? No, 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 oh, she okay. she didn't. Unless you're a plastic surgeon, she didn't ask about you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's talk about the Big Bopper. Remember the uh, Big Bopper? Hello, baby. Why? Yeah. Why was the Big Bopper's body exhumed? Well... When he died in, in rock and roll's first great tragedy with Buddy Holly and Richie Valens in a plane crash in Iowa in 1959, he was 
the, 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 the authorities in this little rural area of, of Iowa collected the, the bodies of the three pop stars and kind of <laughs> sort of put them back together uh, and then shipped them home. There was never an autopsy done. Uh, the bopper, J.P. Richardson was his name, a, a, a local uh, DJ, very popular in Beaumont, Texas. When he gets home, um, he's, he, he's, he's buried with a parade and, and all kinds of, uh, you know, foo-for-all. And, and, but he's put in a, in a part of the cemetery where the, the only thing you can do is a, a plaque, basically, on, on the, the grass level. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to find. I went out with his son one time to visit his father's grave, and he kind of got lost. He wasn't sure. Um, as, a res- as a result of a story I did with the son, he and I actually went back to the crash site, and I was writing about... Uh, his experience in life. He was born three months after his father died. He's known this famous father all of his life. He's just never met him. Uh, he plays, he sings his father's songs in a tribute act, uh, one of probably the biggest one to Buddy Holly and Richie Valens. And he looks father. like his dad, too. And he does. He looks like his father. So, as a result of that story... Uh, the story pointed out that the city had never really done anything for this uh, very well-known, famous uh, local son. Somebody came up with the idea of putting up a statue to him and then a historical marker. The problem is that in this particular part of the cemetery, uh, you can't do that. Eh? Was this little plaque? So the cemetery came to the son and said, "Hey, we'll put the cost." of moving him to a part of the cemetery where you can do this. You can have a little memorial, sort of historical area. And uh, if you want to do that, we can, we'll make that happen. And, he, of course, he did. He wanted to do that. So they the dug him up, the crash, right? There were, uh, immediately, 1959 was no different than 2008. Some, something horrible happens, and the the conspiracy theories leap to the front page. Uh, and there were many that, that arose about this plane crash. Uh, so the son said, while we have him up, would it be okay for us to have a renowned forensic scientist look at him and do an autopsy and, and give us an opinion about how he died? And sure, that was fine. So he he hired Dr. Bill Bass, who founded what's known as the Body Farm at the University of Tennessee. That's a wonderful come name. down to do the autopsy on J.P. Richardson's fifty-year-old corpse. Um, because of the story I had done earlier with the son, also named J. Richardson, uh, J.P. Richardson, as a matter of fact. Uh, he felt comfortable with me. So I was the only journalist allowed to attend the exhumation and the autopsy, uh, which was fascinating. But that was the whole purpose. The first purpose was to move the, the grave to a place where it could get much more visibility and, uh, for lack of a better term, tourism. And while they had him up, the son wanted to lay to rest any any uh, conspiracy theories that the autopsy might. So that's what happened. Well, it sounds awfully gruesome. It was gruesome. I mean, you know, you can't, you can't pluck a, a, a casket out of the uh, muddy gumbo of Beaumont, Texas, mm-hmm. after 50 years and expect to see, uh, you know, a pretty sight. Uh, and, and, and indeed, the, the people, the forensic people, Dr. Bass and his team, told those of the, the, the handful of us who were standing there that this isn't going to be pretty. Uh, and there were certainly moments that, that made us think it was going to be even worse than that. Uh, but the fact is, when they opened it, 
And when Jay Richardson, the son, got to look into his father's face for the very first time, um, that's what I that was why I was there. That was the only, but that's not the only reason, but it was the big reason I was there. You know, what does a, what, what goes through somebody's mind when he gets to meet his father for the first time, and his father is a 50-year-old cadaver? Ugh. What does go through, was there anything left to recognize that even looked like J.P. Richardson? You could look into the face and, and see J.P. Richardson. The fact is, the casket worked. It sealed out the moisture. Uh, the, 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 I think there was some heavy reconstruction done for the funeral in anticipation of the wife or a friend looking, uh, but uh, that never happened. Uh, but the, 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 the human being... In the in the casket was identifiable. He had his trademark uh, crew cut. Uh, he was uh, to at least one person who knew him in life, who was there, uh, immediately recognizable. He had his trademark crew cut after fifty years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you think? Did it. he have a barber with him or something? <laughs> that's that's a little bizarre to me. I don't know. But that's Maybe an amazing thing. Maybe it was a thing. little longer. Than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. It was down to his knees by that time. So the the, the kid, uh, the son, of course, was not a kid anymore. Did he? Was this a cathartic sort of closure thing for him? I, I think it it definitely was. I mean, this is this was uh, literally a once in a lifetime, maybe a once in a billion lifetime opportunity for somebody, uh, and and not. Not one you dream about doing, certainly. I don't no, think no. that I mean, at home. My father's been dead for things. several years, and it hasn't once occurred to me to, to have him uh, exhumed. Yeah, uh, I don't think it was necessarily that, but this was his chance. This was his chance to, to see in the flesh, literally, uh, his father, a man he never met, but who, who sustains him still. Oh, the Big Bopper, you might be surprised, it might surprise you to know the Big Bopper's songs uh, still produce uh, an enormous amount in royalties. Which so, go to the sun, right? I mean, so they go to the sun. Well, so and, he's happy uh, about that. This father is influential in his life in a thousand ways that are not the same as maybe yours and my father was influential in our lives. Strange. Now, I got a question for you. Let's go back to this writing topic. I'm looking at your body of work, not your you know, journalistic stuff, but your books in print. You've got some uh, mystery novels, etc. And then you have one that hasn't been published, that has been praised as gorgeously written, complex and satisfying, a damn near perfect book. What's the problem? Uh, it's sitting partly because... Well, it, it's called The Obituary, and it's a sequel to the mystery that I wrote and that was published, The Deadline. Um, I wrote it during the time I was researching uh, The Darkest Night. I did it as, because I wanted to be writing every day. I wanted to be back in that routine of writing every day. And so that book was my exercise in writing every day. Uh, when I finished it, I launched directly into uh, The Darkest Night. My agent wanted to put The, the, the Darkest Night Fall, originally, uh, into the market, but didn't want any competing uh, projects out there. And to this day, that's been, that's been how it's gone, that... that uh, the obituary, a mystery, sits in the drawer, sort of unexploited, because um, there, there's a hesitance to put two projects out there at the same time. Well, when, when exactly did the paper, I mean, I've got the hardback of fall. When did the, the paper come out? Paper just came out here in, in March. Ah, so that, that explains March. it, see. Yeah. You don't want to compete with yourself yet. No. Give, give yourself and, some breathing room so to drain this sucker for every cent you can before you put out the next one. Well, and now I'm writing a whole other book 
and uh, the, the the whole mindset has sort of kicked in again that that it's this next book we want to have out there and not necessarily the mystery and well can you and, do one of those things of floated around a few places but can't you do Ron uh, Francel writing as Sally Pivnik or something yeah. you know I've seen that yeah, I, I I don't understand why you know J D <laughs> Robb is uh, <laughs> writing under the name of yeah, yeah, they put why, both names on the front of the book <laughs> yeah put, if you put both names why why but yeah that's what happens can I do I Burl know, Bear writing as Ron Francel and help my career <laughs> yeah, yeah nothing would help no, my not? career <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot Fred you know man you probably heard Ron I've been working on the book that I was calling The Cunning Linguist which was about uh, uh, Thomas Murray the linguistics professor who murdered his wife stabbed her 17 times and Said a one-armed man did it or something, and uh, I was, you know, already received my advance, and I'm working away on this, and then discover that uh, uh, another author <laughs> has a book coming out on the case in January. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, doesn't that just yeah, so I'm back to square one, but I'm, I'm doing an Austin case, doing a Texas case, so I'll be coming to Texas where all the great crimes happen. <laughs> Watch out for that electric chair there. While you, uh, yeah, well, while I, be uh, careful where you sit when right. you're in, and don't break any laws. That's what I say. Ooh, no, I'll be, uh, I'll be. I'm doing this. What's the name? Rhonda Glover uh, case. Uh, the rodeo queen who murders her multi-millionaire husband, uh, soon-to-be husband. Gave her $350,000 engagement ring. That's close enough for government work. Ron, thank you so much for being our guest today. You're, I'm delighted and privileged to be here. Well, you are. You know, this is the apex, the pinnacle, the zenith, the Motorola, the quasar of your career is being on Outlaw Radio. You can hang it all up now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm going to retire, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I'm done. Stay tuned next, ladies Bye, and gentlemen, for Magic Matt Allen live from the Lighten Up Lounge with so many special guests, he'll get twice as many votes for Homecoming Queen. Get away from her, you bitch! You are a meathead. Let's rock! Thank you for playing. Should we or should we not follow the advice of the galactically stupid? <laughs> Attention, please. You are receiving a pirate radio transmission. <laughs> oh, come on. Ooh. Ladies and gentlemen, you have hit the bright spot, the wet spot, the light spot on your radio dial. Come on. Oh, you always dress like that, or sometimes you wear clothes. <laughs> Not that I want to be personal, mind you, but would you mind bending over? Never.